Before we start, I'd like to quickly give a sincere thanks to longtime friend of the show, John Haas, and to Alexandra Tursky, hope I'm not butchering your name, for generously supporting the show through Patreon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Now on with the show. Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode, eh, what the hell, I'll call it 170. Last week's wasn't numbered, so... But anyway, listener feedback. It's been a while since I've done one of these, so I figured it was about time. But first up, well, I guess this counts as listener feedback in a way. I'd like to thank Peregrine Fisher and Brent Burgess for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. They finally took me over the 100 mark, so we're officially up to 101 likes now. <clears throat> took me three years, but I finally achieved that personal goal. 100 likes. 101. So thank you guys, I really appreciate it. I know I'm always bugging you guys to like the Facebook page, but I think you might actually enjoy it. Besides giving updates regarding the podcast, I often post links to sites like Patheos and Scientific American and the Huffington Post, uh, links to articles having to do with science and religion and things like that. And once in a while, I might post um, something off topic, like a video from a musician I like or something like that. But you might actually enjoy the content, and it also gives you a place to get in touch with me, let me know what you think about the show, comment on thought-provoking articles, etc. And I like to think I'm pretty good at responding to posts, too, so the Facebook page isn't something that's up there, and then I just forget about it. I'm checking in every day and responding to people. So it's been a while since I've read any iTunes reviews on the air, uh, but I'll do that now. It looks like I have one recent review, and uh, geez, this is actually from May 17th. I'm just spotting it now. Uh, I'm still, I should add the disclaimer, I'm still at 4.5 stars out of 5 on iTunes, so not too shabby at all. And that's pretty much been the average rating since the uh, inception of the show, and I'm very thankful for that. But yeah, I got a one-star rating in, in May. And I'll read that now, and I'll try not to have a meltdown. Let's see. And this is by someone named Tansy Lynn, or, you know, that's their uh, iTunes handle. I tried a few episodes and found it hard to get through them. Others seem to like him. So it's, <clears throat> it looks like I-T-A-S. Yes, I'm going to wail on their grammar since they only gave me one star. Yes, I am petty that way. Yeah, but they probably meant it's. Others seem to like him, so it's probably just me. The current episode about sexism allegations amongst atheist thinkers was the last straw for me, though. Okay, so I'm really torn about what to say about this, because on the one hand, she kind of took the gloves off. She was a little brutal. Uh, she said it was hard to get through the episode. She only gave me one star, one star. But on the other hand, it sounds like she tried to be fair. She listened to a few episodes. And frankly, if it was me, if I had trouble getting through 
the first episode of someone's podcast that I listened to. I probably would have gave up there. Not sure why she kept listening if she didn't enjoy the first episode she heard. And then she says, which is kind of humble, others seem to like him, so it's probably just me. But I'm not really the type of person who goes around leaving negative feedback or thumbs down for people or anything like that. In order for me to bash someone else's content or publicly disprove of it in some way, it usually, I mean, it has to be something like a case where someone is so factually wrong that I think they're doing a disservice to the public. And I almost feel like it's my duty to say, you know, stay away from this. Or, and this is kind of along those same lines, it has to be someone who's just wildly ignorant, like maybe a creationist video, or someone making, you know, religious claims that fly in the face of reason and science, like maybe a Kent Hovind video or something like that, you know? Or maybe if I feel like someone's being particularly nasty in an unfair way. But I can probably literally count on one hand how many times I've left a negative review or I've given someone a thumbs down on YouTube or something like that. I think once in a while, you know, you buy a piece of junk off of Amazon, like a charger for your phone or something, and it literally lasts like one day or a case that, you know, breaks when you try to put it on your device or something. Um, but yeah, usually I'm pretty, I'm pretty fair and forgiving, generally speaking with that kind of thing. I do go after public figures sometimes on the podcast. Like last week I did a takedown of Ben Carson, but I didn't just say, Hey, this guy sucks or Hey, you shouldn't vote for this guy. I pointed out why his claims are erroneous or why I think certain aspects of his past might be suspect. If I am going to give a negative opinion of, of someone or their content, I'll usually at least try to be fair and give an objective reason why. But she says the episode about sexism allegations amongst atheist thinkers was the last straw. And I know this is a, an iTunes review and not a dissertation or an essay or something, so... Uh, you probably want to keep it concise, but I wish I knew what it was about the episode that offended her, because uh, that was the first episode where I really started to get in trouble. Prior to that episode, I really stayed away from issues like sexism, feminism. The topics I covered pretty much had to do with religion, and I only touched on political issues if I was trying to, say, dismantle the claims of a fundamentalist Christian politician or something like that. But I had no idea that episode was going to end up being as divisive as it was. I thought I was just uh, approaching an interesting topic that had to do with the quote-unquote atheist community. I'll put atheist community in quotes because I came to my atheistic views on my own, you know, and I tried to avoid groupthink. After all, uh, we non-believers are supposed to be free thinkers. We come to our atheistic worldview, hopefully, because that's where reason and logic has led us and not because we want to be part of some group. 
So I don't really necessarily think of myself as part of an atheist community. I'm just someone who happens to have an atheistic worldview. And I think groupthink is kind of the bane of free thought. So I thought I was just good-naturedly covering yet another topic that had some relation to the subject of uh, atheism. And it was the first time I really found out about free thought blogs, Gamergate, radical feminism, uh, the MRA movement, and, and things like that. I was pretty naive about all that stuff beforehand. Prior to that, I, I had some knowledge about people, a little bit of knowledge about people like P.Z. Myers and Richard Carrier. I enjoyed watching some YouTube uh, videos of Richard Carrier talking about the so-called Christ myth, but I had no clue about all the free thought blogs drama. And I thought I was pretty darn fair in my coverage of things like Gamergate and free thought blogs and feminism versus the MRA movement. I was pretty much new to all that stuff. And also, like I, like I hope I usually do, I, I try to approach it in a truly fair and objective way and try to, you know, weigh both sides and, and try to find w where the truth lies or, or which side has more merit. But I, I lost a female listener over that episode and a couple of subsequent episodes where I talked about the, the same material, Gamergate, um, sexism in the atheist community, uh, Rebecca Watson, etc. I, I tried to be as fair as I could. And uh, I had a really good online friend, a listener of the show, I won't say her name, but she ended up sending me kind of the internet equivalent of a Dare John letter and saying, you know, she thought she couldn't listen to uh, the show anymore um, because she was a feminist and she thought my views on feminism were too divergent from her own, I guess. And it still baffles me uh, to some degree because I thought I was very even-handed and I talked about how I think women deserve all the same rights as men. They deserve the same level of respect as men do. You know, we should look at each other as human beings. But at the same time, I did poke fun a little at people like Rebecca Watson and, you know, Elevator Gate and all that. So this person, Tansy Lynn, I don't know if she disliked that particular episode because she thought my views were somehow anti-feminist or if maybe it was the opposite and she thought that it was maybe unfair of me to bring up these uh, allegations of sexual misconduct or whatever against high-profile individuals in the atheist community. One person I brought up was Michael Shermer. I'm a big Michael Shermer fan. Even before I consciously thought of myself as an atheist. I, I can remember being young, watching documentaries on, you know, the Science Channel or History or Discovery or whatever, and seeing Michael Shermer as a voice of reason. So I'm a longtime Michael Shermer fan, and I actually think I was very fair to him in that episode, and I tried to hammer home the point that these are just allegations. It's like a he said, she said situation. But there was some stuff about some kind of controversy or drama about how Michael Shermer might have a habit of 
hitting on uh god forbid hitting on girls at uh at atheist or skeptic conferences and and i think there was one story about him lunging at a you know prominent female scientist like he was going to grope her or something then someone claimed that supposedly michael Shermer raped her uh, that he got her drunk and took her back to uh, either his room or her room, and supposedly she was too drunk to consent or something like that. And I don't know what the truth is. One thing that makes me a little bit more wary, now that I have more experience viewing radical feminist uh, videos on YouTube, I was pretty naive at the time I did that episode. I didn't know much about the feminist community or the MRA community. And I know that a lot of people think that political correctness has completely run amok in what are called the social justice warrior and kind of radical feminist circles. And I would agree in a lot of ways. And we have some people who have this kind of extreme view about rape that we're not talking about if someone's unconscious, but if someone consumed almost any alcohol at all a woman and you have sex with her as crazy as it sounds. Some people say that's rape. And so with the Michael Shermer thing, I don't even know if that really happened. I don't know if, if it did happen, if the woman actually was unconscious or so intoxicated that she was barely aware of her surroundings, which you could say that is rape. You know, if you have sexual intercourse with someone who is either unconscious or so out of their mind that they don't even know where they are. You know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's rape. But if someone has a few drinks and you had a few drinks, and this has been going on since time immemorial, or since the, uh, since man first started fermenting alcohol, if you, if you have two people who are loosened up with alcohol, but they still know where they are. They're still aware of the decisions they're making. Um, to me, that is not rape. So I, I don't know what happened w with the Michael, whole Michael Shermer thing. And I feel like I'm probably digging myself a hole once again by bringing all this stuff up again. But hey, what do you want? Yeah, but all the stuff about trigger warnings, about, you know, if someone has a couple of drinks... And they consent to have sex. That's rape. Uh, mansplaining. Microaggressions. These are all concepts I've just recently become acquainted with uh, via YouTube. Yeah, but a lot of it seems ridiculous to me. Um, but I'm very pro-women's rights. I think everyone should be treated with humanity and respect. Uh, despite gender, creed, color, etc. Yeah, but when ideology, whether it's on the left, the right, whether it's uh, feminism or men's rights, when views start to get too extreme, uh, that's when I think they start to seem cult-like and groupthink starts to set in and uh, logic, reason, and clear thinking start to erode or take a back seat to towing the, uh, the party line or whatever. So I'm not some male feminist like Steve Shives. And when I think next week I'm going to do YouTube Atheist Part 2. And I'm probably going to do a little bit of a takedown of Steve Shives.
uh, in that episode. So I'm not a, a male feminist and I'm not an MRA either. I don't have a chip on my shoulder towards women or anything like that, quite the contrary. I just don't like when political correctness starts to eclipse reason, etc. Yeah, but Tansy Lynn gave me one star. And uh, just to cheer myself up, I'll read a couple of positive reviews from the past. Jeez, I have to go back to 2014. But here's one from Wade Cardall, a uh, good friend of the show. Phil really is a great voice in the secular movement. He has a great everyman approach to questions that lead people to doubt. I don't mean to say he's not smart. He's quite intelligent and well thought out. I just mean to say his podcast is very relatable and a welcome point of view. And Wade gave me uh, five stars. Awesome, man. Twisted Erotica gave me five stars. Phil is great to listen to, and I love how he keeps me up to date with current events. My only complaint is I want more. Longer episodes, please. A lot of people have the opposite complaint or point of view. They think I'm long-winded, especially on YouTube. People seem to like concise, bite-sized little videos. I'm actually the opposite. I like to kind of multitask and work and do different things while I'm listening to a YouTube video. So I get annoyed when I have to listen to a series of like two or five minute videos and stop to load a new video in between. I kind of like being able to let like, you know, a half an hour, an hour long video just go in the background while I do my thing. Uh, here's one from, I haven't talked to Atheus, Atheos or Atheus, A-T-H-E-O-U-S. We used to talk a lot. I don't know whatever happened to him. He used to get in touch with me, I think, through Twitter, Facebook, through YouTube. And he kind of fell off the map. But here's what he had to say. It took me a while to figure what I wanted to write about this cast and why exactly I like it. It's pump up the volume like the movie with Christian Slater. He seems to think out loud, perhaps speaking to everyone or no one. I expect him to play tunes in between thoughts sometimes. Um, I wish I could do that. If it wasn't for uh, copyright issues, I would love to play some of my favorite tunes. Just, you know, an eclectic sampling of my favorite music on the show. But obviously I can't do that. I think it would be a win-win. It would give me a chance to add some you know, ambiance or flair to the show. And at the same time, it would be promoting different artists. But I guess, hey, you know, whatever. It's especially a concern with YouTube where even like a 10-second clip of someone else's song can get your video demonetized or earn you a copyright warning. But anyway, he continues, the format is much like a fellow talking about what he thinks about what's going on. It seems more personal, more like a conversation, perhaps. I usually have a cup of coffee and settle in. It's informative, thought-provoking, and mellow due to Phil's particular style and voice. Reminds me of David Putty. It has become one of the casts I look forward to. I recommend giving it a listen, particularly if the more angry or confrontational shows aren't your taste. Well done, Phil. Yes, we're listening. And then, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen this one before. Another five-star reading by Pedant Platypus. And, uh... They say, well, addressing issues that are often addressed by other podcasters and authors and speakers, many for hundreds of years, Phil provides an engaging program with well thought out and expressed reviews of issues of interest to quote unquote overthinking skeptics and non-believers and probably believers as well. Maybe meant uh, well thought out and expressed views, but I'm not going to be too nitpicky about grammar 
because unlike Tansy Lynn, the platypus gave me five stars. <laughs> yes. Um, but if any of you guys out there, I'm, I ain't too uh, proud to beg. If any of you guys want to give me an iTunes review, it would be much appreciated. Perhaps we can bury Tansy Lynn's one star in a flood of positive reviews. All right. But it should go without saying, only give me a positive review if you think I earn it, which, I mean, why would you give me a positive review if you didn't like the content? But anyway, I'm getting all neurotic. So that takes care of the iTunes reviews. And I have uh, 27 reviews in all, but I've read most of them on the show in the past. So let's go to YouTube. And that's not the first person to tell me I sound like David Putty. Uh, from Seinfeld, uh, the same actor does the voice of Brock, or did, I don't know, is Venture Brothers still on the air? He did the voice of uh, Brock Samson on the Venture Brothers. Patrick Warburton, I think his name is. I had deviated septum surgery years ago <clears throat> and rhinoplasty at the same time. I talked about the whole thing on a past episode of the show. I got rid of the hump on my Italian nose. And now because I'm blonde and blue-eyed, I probably don't look Italian at all. And sometimes because I'm neurotic, I actually miss my old nose. But hey, what are you going to do? Like glue another hump on or something? But, uh, but yeah, I had deviated septum surgery and I still sound like I permanently have a cold. I sound like Dave Putty. Any Seinfeld fans out there? No, you're the grease monkey. Coco, that chimp's all right. High five. All right, that's my David Putty impersonation. And I'm pretty sure when I had that surgery done, they gave me uh, liquid cocaine. I don't know if I mentioned that on the show. I was actually, I can remember being surprised. I'm like, geez, they still give people that? It reminds me of uh, that show. Was it on Showtime or Stars or Cinemax? Show starring Clive Owen called The Nick about a doctor. I think it takes place in the uh, early 1900s back when uh, I think cocaine was still legal and he's addicted to cocaine and I think he shoots it up and it's in like these clair vials. But in order to dilate your nose for surgery, they alternate between giving you like Afrin, like the spray decongestant and uh, the spray form of cocaine. And I can remember, I'm, I'm a pretty mellow guy. I'm not really afraid of surgery or anything, but I started to get all amped up. And the uh, anesthetic they gave me made me feel like I, I was, uh, <laughs> like my nerves were on fire. I had like pins and needles throughout my body or like a burning sensation. And I'm thinking, maybe I don't want to do this. Uh, I think I'm changing my mind, you know? And then mask on the face, rolling me on a gurney. And before you know it, lights out. And I wake up with like, black eyes and a bandage in the middle of my face. And that's like, I think, one of three surgeries I had. I also had surgery on my wrist once. And uh, how's this for too much information? I don't know if I've ever spoken about this on the show before. When I was like 19 or 20, I had an adult circumcision because I was self-conscious about being uh, uncircumcised. That's another one I wish I probably never had done. So I've had experience on both sides of the fence with that issue. <laughs> people always want to know about if, uh, <clears throat> you know, what was better before or after the surgery. And I definitely have opinions on that. Um, intimate relation, shall we say. So I'll start with the recent Ben Carson episode, which I entitled The Crazy Claims of Ben Carson. And uh, that's got 186 views, which is 
small time, you know, on YouTube, but it's not bad. There's people out there who literally have like three views on a video. So 186 views and 11 thumbs up. Some of my other videos, I think like a couple of the videos I did where I talk about atheist rue or uh, atheism is unstoppable. Those got around a thousand. People really seem to like the episode I did on the founding fathers where I basically read a collection of quotes regarding religion from the founding fathers. And I think that one might have roughly a thousand or something, but uh, I know all these numbers are still small time. My channel as a whole has a lot of views, but I think that's because I have atheist debate videos and little Bill Maher clips and stuff up as well. Yeah, so I have about two and a half million views, 1,838 subscribers, not to toot my own horn. I wish the views were mostly for my original content, but <laughs> most of them are probably for the Bill Maher clips and stuff like that. But a couple of my videos have uh, some decent numbers. But here's an exchange between me and a couple of subscribers about, a, briefly in passing, I talked about how Ben Carson is a vegetarian. And I give him props for that because I'm always talking about how much I love animals on this show, and I'm still a you know a meat eater, albeit a conflicted meat eater. And uh, I mentioned how Ben Carson gave this 20-year estimate by which he thinks people will stop eating meat. And I'm like, even as someone who maybe wishes that was so, I'm like, I, I don't think so. That's, you know, that's just way too short an estimate. I actually, I don't know if we'll ever, I don't know if we'll ever, ever get to the point where everyone stops eating meat. Because I think we're wired to be omnivorous. Isn't there a theory? I think I've talked about this with uh, Chris Weber before. And I don't know if I'm getting it exactly right. But there's some theory about during the process of human evolution, maybe when we were Australopithecines or something like that, one of our uh, early bipedal, probably still very ape-like ancestors, supposedly started eating meat by scavenging the kills of predators and it's thought that meat eating somehow may have contributed to the development of this you know prodigious brain that we possess the, these big human brains i think when chris and i were talking about it he was saying that supposedly tool use played a role in the development of the brain too that something about us being able to use tools and fire, you know, to prepare our food meant that you didn't need these big, strong, oversized jaws anymore. And something about that, the uh, something about how the change in jaw size may have allowed for a bigger brain or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, and I'm just thinking and musing out loud here. If any of you guys out there feel like adding to the conversation, uh, if you're more informed about this stuff, uh, please just, you know, get in touch via uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter, or whatever. Uh, you can get in touch at the uh, Week in Doubt at Gmail as well. Or it could have been that, you know, eating meat helped us develop bigger brains in the first place, and that allowed us to become intelligent enough to manipulate tools and then that allowed us to cook and cut and prepare our uh, our food so we didn't need these these prognathous jaws uh, you know 
which somehow uh, there might be some correlation between that and uh, increase in brain size or something like that. And then, of course, when we develop the ability for language and abstract thinking, that's when uh, you know things really start to take off. All right, through the magic of editing, I'm going to chime in here and read a little bit of an article from Live Science entitled, Eating Meat Made Us Human Suggests New Skull Fossil. And this dates back to October of 2012. Fragments of a 1.5 million year old skull from a child recently found in Tanzania suggest early hominids weren't just occasional carnivores, but regular meat eaters, researchers say. The findings help build the case that meat eating helped the human lineage evolve large brain, scientists added. I know this will sound awful to vegetarians, but meat made us human, said researcher Manuel Dominguez Rodrigo an archaeologist at Complutense, Complutense University in Madrid. I probably butchered that, I'm sure. Past research suggested pre-human hominids such as Australopithecines, ha-ha, I was right, may have eaten some meat. However, it is the regular consumption of meat that often is thought to have triggered major changes in the human lineage, the genus Homo with the high-energy food supporting larger human brains. All right. I just wanted to read that just so you guys didn't think I was pulling stuff out of thin air here. But anyway, why the hell am I talking about this? Oh, yeah, I started talking about uh, humans being wired, at least partially, to uh, eat meat. And eating meat is enjoyable. There's no way around it. You know, I love animals. Uh, my heart breaks for them. But at the same time, some of my favorite foods, man. I mean, all different types of chicken. Fried chicken, chicken wings you get from the Chinese restaurant, grilled chicken. Hell, I even like those nasty processed chicken nuggets and shit. <laughs> and, oh man, like, I love Chinese food. Beef teriyaki, even a big piece of steak, you know, kind of bloody on a heap of rice pilaf. That's one of my favorite things, man. So, I mean... I especially feel bad for pigs because of how intelligent they are. They're supposedly at least as intelligent as dogs. And they just get put through hell on, uh, you know, factory farms. Highly intelligent animals. And they get penned in and kept in cramped quarters sometimes where they can't even turn around. Sometimes beaten and abused by uh, workers, etc. But pork is delicious too, man. Holy crap. Home-style stuffing with a nice pork chop on the bone. I fall on that stuff like an animal. Uh, but this is probably too much information again. So I think that you know, we, we really are wired to eat meat, but at the same time, we're self, we've evolved to the point where we're self-aware and we're able to empathize, to put ourselves in the shoes of not just other humans, but other creatures as well. And to realize that the creatures that we're killing for our food are also sentient beings. And that creates quite the moral predicament, you know? So I don't know if we'll ever completely get, even if, let's say, in the industrialized world, if in the modern West, at some point, maybe we will, you know, in a couple hundred years, um, for the most part, stop eating meat. I'm sure there'll still be tribes and, uh, you know, impoverished areas in the world where people still hunt and things like that. Or... Or there may be people, no matter how much civilization advances as a whole, you might still have people who are survivalists or just like providing food for their families themselves through hunting. 
So it, it might be real pie in the sky, you know, too much of a utopian vision to think that eating meat will ever be completely wiped out. We'd have to probably look very far in the future if our species survives long enough where we're one globalized community, uh, kind of one homogenous culture, all sharing the same type of uh, technology or something like that. Um, but I don't see that happening for a, a long, long time. We should at least keep pushing and pushing to try to make sure that animals are treated as humanely as possible, especially kind of highly uh, sentient animals like pigs and cows and things like that. But anyway, uh, so here's this exchange. And this is from Color Me Gone. If human beings ever actually do stop eating meat, then every species that has been domesticated for that purpose will be extinct within a few generations. Meat animals require intense care. Left to the vagaries of evolution, they stand little chance of surviving, particularly when you consider the amount of land given over to their use, which can be turned into, e.g., golf courses and housing developments. So far from breathing a sigh of relief, and that's quoting Ben Carson, those animal species will face annihilation. And before I read my reply, I guess the only way in which I, I kind of disagree with that is that I think, in a weird way, I would probably rather have a species of animal die off naturally uh, than having that species perpetuated where generation after generation lives this kind of nightmarish slaughterhouse existence or whatever. So I think maybe, like, let's say, just theoretically, if we could flip a switch and everyone just stops eating meat, you know, we stop eating pork, we stop eating beef. I don't know. I think maybe we'd have to do something like sterilize the vast majority of domestic livestock or something like that and let the population really dwindle down. Then who knows? You know, it might get to a point where people just keep cows and pigs as pets or something like that. You know what I mean? And, and the numbers are fairly low. Uh, who knows? This is all just wild speculation. But I responded, Hi, thanks for replying. I think you bring up a really good point. Ending the consumption of meat would entail a lot of complex logistical baggage that would make it a lot more complicated than simply stopping. I think in part that's why Ben Carson's 20-year guesstimation sounds so unrealistic. And man, my jaw just dropped. I have GarageBand running in the background while I'm reading these YouTube reviews. And it paused for a second when I went to load it. So I thought it wasn't recording, which has happened in the past. I've gone like 20 up to like 30 minute stretches and realized that for some reason, the software in the background wasn't recording. And this is all impromptu, unscripted. You know, I have to go back and try to remember everything I said. So my blood just went cold for a minute, but then GarageBand kicked in, and yes, it was recording. Okay. Um, and then he responds, I can foresee a time when meat is produced in factories, and in fact, synthetic meat grown in the laboratory has already been trialed as food. Of course, many people distrust science, and so it wasn't a runaway success. But if it's more efficient and stops the production of greenhouse gases, it will eventually be a reality. And you could actually tailor the product to be healthier and more tasty, and even produce exotic varieties, e.g. sea turtle is supposed to be one of the tastiest meats, but its use is banned because they are near extinction. And then I replied, 
Thanks for yet another thoughtful reply. Yes, I remember stories about synthetic meat in the news about a year or two ago. On another note, YouTube just informed me that someone left a comment on this video that simply reads KKK. Maybe because Ben Carson happens to be black and I'm criticizing him. It went into my spam folder by default. Anyway, it makes me appreciate all the more having intelligent, level-headed viewers like yourself. Smiley face emoticon. And then Will Mock jumped in and he said, How do you feel about eating animals genetically engineered without brains, a nervous system or complex brains that felt pain? And Color Me Gone replies to Will by saying, it would be impossible for any animal without a brain to live. The meat we're talking about does not come from GM animals, but is grown using nutrients, much as vegetables are grown hydroponically. And Will Mock replies, how about starfish, sponges, kynodarians, I think he says, uh, flatworms, nematodes, and echinoderms. I'm not saying this is something that can be done in the foreseeable future, but what if you can make a brainless cow, or one without a nervous system or a brain at all, or below that of insects? And if it is like a starfish, you cut the leg off and he grows a new one. That is hypothetical, even if, po even if impossible. What do you think of animal flesh you can eat that has no complex brain or nervous system? And then uh, Color Me Gone replies, Meat has already been grown and tested for palatability without any brain being involved. And then I jump in, One of my favorite foods is scallops, one of the few sources of meat I can eat and feel relatively guilt-free. I think level of sentience is definitely a key factor, morally speaking. I think creating brain-dead animals would go a long way to solving the moral problem of eating meat. But people might find the idea jarring or off-putting. Ethically, it would still be better than killing sentient animals. But as Color Me Gone has pointed out, we've already reached the point where meat or tissue can be cultivated in a lab. I just imagined a laboratory full of cows grown without heads. I'm going to have nightmares tonight. <laughs> then Will Mock also commented on... Ben Carson's dream anecdote where he claimed that God or an angel gave him all of the answers to a uh, chemistry final, I think it was, the night before. And here's what he says. It's hard to read in dreams. It turns out reading something in dreams is damn difficult. The letters tend to blend and jump around. And if you turn away and look back, the text will usually change to something completely different. And then he, he cites a source, uh, an article about lucid dreaming. So he was able to read a test in his dream and remember it. I'm guessing he knew the stuff or just got lucky, winning the lotto in multiple choice. If it was multiple choice, is more likely than God helping you on a test. And I said, thanks for the link. I've always been fascinated by lucid dreaming, which I have. And I'd like to uh, investigate that topic more. I always felt that, like, maybe if you could learn to lucid dream, it might be very therapeutic in a way. You know, it seems like I'm an atheist, agnostic atheist, a skeptic, so I don't think there's anything supernatural or airy uh, about dreams. I think that dreams are our brains or our mind's way of trying to work through conflicts that we experience in our waking life, or maybe just the brain kind of, you know, defragging or something and, you know, moving around different puzzle pieces or something like that. But it does seem like we are trying to work through problems in our dreams in this very kind of strange, 
disjointed abstract way and lucid dreaming just means that you're aware that you're dreaming and you have more control over how you behave in the dream and, and interact with your dream surroundings yeah so i always thought that maybe that that might that might be very cathartic or helpful or empowering being able to learn how to how to uh, lucid dream but anyway, Will Mock also says, I think the guy is really smart to be able to do what he does, has great steady hands and the things required to do great surgery. Religious people can be good at learning what works in reality and are able to cut off what they know about reality and what works at the moment and what historically is accurate. Also, the deeper you look into reality, it seems way too bizarre. Most people find reality just way too depressing as is and can't imagine being sane without a god there to preserve their memories and consciousness and death. I don't know just isn't acceptable enough for them. I'm probably insulting them by thinking they are too weak, but I've had many close friends and family that believe in some spiritual things say this, and we have to move on and consider it fine as long as they can be productive members of society and not hurt anyone or let their ideas get in the way of someone else's freedoms. I think that's well said, and I think that does perplex a lot of us non-believers on face value. How can someone be incredibly intelligent, be a person of science or a person of medicine, and yet still believe in the supernatural claims of a man-made religion and, and engage in all this wishful thinking and suspension of disbelief? So at first, it does seem really paradoxical. And I think it probably all just comes down to compartmentalization. Um <clears throat> And I think that's what Will was saying. You know, they can they can have this one area where they store their religious belief and all their airy-fairy woo-woo uh, ideas and their suspension of disbelief. And then they can also have this focused, disciplined understanding of science or the field in which they excel in, on the other hand, you know. But I think, you know, even that said, generally speaking, I think... Highly intelligent people, critical thinkers, scientists, they do tend to be non-believers. I believe the majority, I forget what the exact percentage is, but I believe the majority of scientists are um, atheists or at least non-believers. But of course, there are some exceptions like uh, Ben Carson and of course, Francis Collins, uh, who headed up the Human Genome Project and who was also friends with the late Christopher Hitchens. And I think he uh, actually gave Christopher Hitchens advice, uh, you know, medical advice about how to treat his cancer and things like that. But Francis Collins is a devout Christian, and I think he was raised fairly secular. But as a grown adult, he had this experience where he was out in nature hiking or something like that, and he saw... I think it was three frozen waterfalls or a frozen waterfall that had this kind of triple configuration that reminded him of the Holy Trinity. And I think as Sam Harris says, you know, he fell to his knees in the dewy grass and uh, he basically, you know, became a Christian. Um, so he had this transcendent experience. And I've spoken a lot on this show. How I think we all have transcendent experiences, but those aren't proof of the supernatural. They're not proof of an afterlife or of a creator deity. They could probably all be boiled down to neurochemical phenomena uh, rather than supernatural phenomena. We know that 
an increased level of endorphins, certain neurotransmitters, you know, feel-good chemicals can have a vast impact on our consciousness and our perception. And uh, everything from running, you know, the runner's high to having an orgasm to doing, you know, illicit drugs like ecstasy or LSD. These chemical experiences can give us what seem like spiritual experiences or transcendent experiences. But I think uh, I heard something interesting, whereas the majority of scientists do tend to be non-believers, I think there's a fairly high percentage of doctors that tend to be religious. Um, Don't take that to the bank. I don't have any studies in front of me or anything like that. But I remember being caught off guard by that, so it, it stuck with me. And I think one of the reasons that I heard posited is that it might have to do with... um because doctors are directly responsible for taking care of other people, they have lives in their hands, they sometimes have people dying on the operating table, they have to do things like tell people they have cancer, that it could be like a coping mechanism thing, where doctors tend to adopt a more kind of spiritual outlook as opposed to scientists in general. Yeah, but then, uh, okay, so Roy Klopfenstein, and this was originally relegated to my spam folder, but I approved it. And he says, uh, well, he just typed the three letters, KKK. And I responded, I approved your comment just so everyone can see it and judge for themselves. So why am I quote unquote KKK? Because Carson happens to be black and I challenge some of his claims. Number of times race comes up in this video, zero. Next, I'll go to the episode I did entitled Getting Honest About the Afterlife. And here's Will Mock again. And Will says, life already gives us clues on what happens when you die. Just think back before your birth, before you had a brain. That is what awaits you after you lose your brain functions after death and it decays. If you take scoops of your brain away or lose it to dementia at old age, you notice small pieces of what you think is you is going away. Those dead pieces of brain are not experiencing consciousness in an afterlife. And if they are, it isn't your experience and what you consider yourself. In dreamless sleep when your brain isn't fully functioning, consciousness, that is also a good experience of what death and non-existence is like. And I replied, hi, Will, very well said. You pretty much summed up my thoughts on the topic. I believe science and anatomy point to consciousness being an emergent property of the brain. And I'll double down on what Will said that, um, you know, if you damage a certain part of the brain, we can see a kind of corresponding impact on on the self or cognitive ability. Uh, We know different parts of the brain, although I think it's um, now thought more than ever that brain as a whole. It's kind of a holistic organ, and it's perhaps not quite as compartmentalized as as we thought. Uh, It's maybe more plastic than we thought, but, and I'm using plastic in the sense of, you know, malleable, meaning, you know, being able to relearn certain things or certain parts, being able to pick up slack for other parts. But still, the brain is a compartmentalized kind of, you know, a manifold organ with different parts that have different duties. And we know that the frontal lobe is responsible for impulse control, the brain stem for basic autonomic functions, uh, the neocortex for kind of, you know, higher thinking and things like that. And so we know that if, say, 
isn't there that famous story about Phineas Gage who got something like a uh, metal rod through his head or something like that and had like a personality change? The story might be partly apocryphal, but it, it's it's based on a true story. But the extreme of personality change uh, he underwent underwent might be exaggerated to some degree but it's still based on a true story that i think he might have been like a fairly nice guy and then after damage to his frontal lobe you know he had this complete personality change but yeah we know that damaging the frontal lobe can affect impulse control can affect personality and of course we know about the horrible practice of uh frontal lobotomies that used to be practiced in uh sane asylums etc uh when people were pretty much you know turned into zombies um at least that's uh how it's commonly portrayed i think there are different types of lobotomies and not all might have uh had as drastic an effect on uh personality and we know with things like um will brought up dementia we know with alzheimer's that as the brain kind of atrophies or gets uh taken over by these plaques etc that it's as if the self is deteriorating as well and i'm not going to get too personal but i've had elderly members of the family you know i've noticed a certain degree of memory loss and it can be quite disturbing you know, or maybe one minute someone can remember something from 30 years ago, but they can't remember going to the doctor an hour ago or something like that. You know, it's the disturbing and scary stuff. And we know that in extreme case of Alzheimer's and senile dementia, you can have people who don't even recognize their loved ones, can be very confrontational and combative, treating their loved ones like strangers. Um, not even being aware of their surroundings, not even knowing what decade they're in, you know? So, yeah, so it really does seem like consciousness is an emergent property of the brain and that the two are inextricably linked. And so it would seem that when the brain goes, the personality, we go as well, you know? Um, the only workaround to play devil's advocate that I can possibly think of is that you'd have to argue that the brain is some kind of receiver, and I'm a big fan of the author Aldous Huxley. He wrote the book, The Doors of Perception. And he was this very erudite English author, um, a philosopher, and just kind of, in a way, a kind of really, uh, this kind of straightforward, practical thinker. And he used to be kind of self-deprecating and saying he didn't think he had much of, you know, uh, an imagination. And yet famously... He wrote, you know, of course, Brave New World, but he also also wrote a lot of philosophical works. And uh, two of my favorites are, are The Doors of Perception slash Heaven and Hell and uh, a great book called The Perennial Philosophy. And he also borrowed the Blake quote, when the doors of perception of cl are cleansed, men will see things are as they truly are, infinite. And that's where the doors got their, uh, the, got the name for their band. But The Doors of Perception is all about consciousness how to alter it the effect of mind altering drugs like like mescaline and lysergic acid and uh good old button down all those huxley actually experimented with mind altering drugs and uh i think that's what's inspired that's what inspired him to write the doors of perception and he talked about this idea of a kind of reducer reducing valve 
that the brain is kind of a receiver for consciousness. And usually we're only getting like a drip. Uh, we only get enough consciousness in so that we can perform our practical utilitarian everyday tasks. And that if too much consciousness came in and we were kind of one with the mind at large and we were constantly like mind blown, like like when you're on an acid trip where you feel like you're plugged into the universe or whatever, that it wouldn't be good for, you know, survival, that uh, we wouldn't be able to get our daily tasks done, etc. And so it's a very kind of appealing and seductive idea, but I'm very skeptical of it. And uh, I do tend to think that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain and that the brain isn't just some receiver, but who knows, maybe I could be proven wrong. So we'd have to say that the brain is this complex antenna with all these different parts that kind of receives and then processes consciousness. And so that's all speculation. The more down-to-earth explanation would be that the brain itself is responsible for consciousness. And that's why we have all these different parts. That's why it's multifaceted and and why when one area gets damaged, you know, we see a correlation in uh, changes in personality and uh, functioning and cognitive ability, etc. And I think this is in regard to my kind of debunking the way in which kind of spiritual or new agey types throw around the word energy and how they even sometimes kind of hijack the uh, first law of thermodynamics that talks about how energy can be neither created nor destroyed. And of course, the uh, airy fairy types take this as meaning that uh, you know our spirit is energy. That means our spirits are immortal and are never destroyed. But of course, when we're talking about thermodynamics, we're talking about the physical sciences. We're not talking about um, some nebulous idea of a, of a, a vague idea of a spirit that's never been empirically proven. We're talking about things like heat and magnetism and things like that, um, kinetic and stored energy. But uh, Django, Django Segovia, one of my favorite uh, YouTube subscribers, he says, ah, yes, this is very helpful. My quote-unquote spiritual friend hit me with that quote-unquote energy doesn't die chestnut not too long ago. And to be honest, it kind of caught me off guard. My rebuttal was, dude, stop making an ass of yourself and sound like a moron. Now I know exactly what to say. I still need to catch last week's episode. <laughs> And I replied, hi, Django, happy the help, smiley face emoticon. Hope you like horror movies. Last week's episode was a two-hour Halloween special on the subject. And then uh, Will says, even though religion gives you the capacity of doing really evil shit, and maybe he censored himself, he wrote sheet to, uh, to each other. Even if it did produce great things, this does not mean it is real. Religion can also be true and make you do awful things. The fruits of belief in a religion make no evidence of it being true or not. Unless a certain ritual gave superficial results constantly and predictably with real high percent of certainty, then that religious ritual is useful. And of course, that's true in the, the sense that 
just be, let's say for the sake of argument that religion can inspire people to do good works in some instances, which I think is true in, in the case of people feeding the poor or providing people in the third world with uh, medical care. It can also inspire people to do wicked acts, as in the case with uh, terrorism. And of course, we just recently had that horrible series of terrorist attacks in uh, Paris, uh, you know, that, the smaller attacks that coincided with the, uh, the nightclub or uh, that arena shooting, the Bataclan Theater, uh, where the Eagles of Death Metal were playing. And I haven't talked a lot about that just because so many other people were talking about it. So there's no shortage of YouTube or podcast commentary on the subject. And I'm just so worn down by, you know, I just, when these things happen, I just shake my head. I'm like, another, another terrorist attack, you know? And it's kind of like, what can I say? How many times do I have to say that killing people in the name of your man-made religion is grotesque, abhorrent, and barbaric? You know, how many times do I have to say it? And now, of course, there's this big feud going on. We have the kind of social justice types on the one hand saying, you know, don't be bigoted jerks, let all the <laughs> refugees in. Uh, then we have conservatives and others, um, and, and not just conservatives, but people who rightly probably have a fear or concern about more immigrants coming in to uh, a given country, whether it's France, Germany, or uh, America. Um, who could end up being terrorists or becoming radicalized or something. And I'm, I'm definitely split on this. Uh, I make no bones about it. Uh, I'm definitely a, a, a fence sitter on this one. On one hand, I think the pro refugee people make some good points that, that for the most part, these are people who are fleeing ISIS and fleeing violence and conflict and probably just want peace and a place to settle. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's normal and logical. If you have this reoccurring problem where people of a certain ethnicity or a certain religion are committing terrorist acts and failing to fully assimilate or whatever, it makes sense to be afraid that bringing in even more people might possibly add to the problem. But then people will say, well, a lot of these homegrown terrorists aren't first-generation immigrants. They're second- or third-generation people who, young men usually, but of course we know there's a couple of women involved in the recent terrorist attacks where I believe there was a woman with a suicide vest when the police were doing a raid following the uh, initial terrorist attacks in, in Paris. But supposedly these are kind of like disenfranchised Muslims who grew up, perhaps born and grew up in their host country, but become radicalized, you know, because they feel disenfranchised or something. And that's something I should talk about also. I had someone, I won't say who, I had someone close to me the night that this was still unfolding on live TV, just still in, not shock, but, you know, still kind of numbed, you know, when I was still trying to grasp what the hell was going on and I was just outraged outrage and just worn down you know yet another terrorist attack and I, I think I said something to the effect 
of why do terrorists do this? You know, what do they think they're going to achieve has, and maybe there are instances, I don't know, but in human history, or at least in modern human history, has any powerful nation after a terrorist attack said, oh, we better give them what they want. You know, (laughs) no, when you kill innocents and blow stuff up, it just makes people more determined to want to double down on their war efforts or whatever, you know? I mean, has any powerful European country that's ever experienced terrorism said, oh, that's it, we better convert to Islam, or, you know, we better hand the keys to the kingdom over to uh, Al-Qaeda or ISIS. You know, maybe it might provoke some people to say, why are we in the Middle East? Maybe we should just pull up roots and get the hell out of there, you know? It might provoke thought about that, but just as often, it it just intensifies an an already ongoing campaign. So terrorism doesn't ever seem to accomplish anything except killing and maiming innocents. So, you know, I don't get it. Uh, A very bizarre thing to do in the name of uh, any deity or any uh, worthwhile deity, of course, being a a non-believer. I don't believe there actually is one. Um, killing people in the name of a non-existent deity. Give me a break, man. It's absolutely disgusting. And I would say, hypothetically, if a god did exist and he looked on approvingly at things like beheading live journalists or killing innocents inside a nightclub or whatever, then uh, I don't care if he created the universe. He's not a god worth worshiping. Yeah, but even if a lot of these terrorists are truly are homegrown. You know, they're not first wave immigrants. They're the sons or grandsons of, uh, of Muslim immigrants. Still, these people often get radicalized in mosques by, you know, extremist clerics and things like that. So I can understand why whenever something like, you know, a Charlie Hebdo attack or this Bataclan thing uh, happens, I can understand why the gut reaction, and it was my gut reaction. I'm like, this stuff keeps happening. Why do you keep letting more people, if the perpetrators are of a specific religion and coming from certain areas of the map, at least ethnically, even if they're homegrown, why do you keep letting more people in if you have this ongoing problem? And so I think it makes sense to be concerned about keeping your doors open to immigrants when you're experiencing this type of thing. But then the other thing, you know, I go back and forth. I think about how during World War II, how shiploads of Jews were turned away uh, shamefully. And, And I think, is this a similar thing? Are these people that are really in danger of dying at the hands of ISIS or because they're caught in the middle of um, a violent conflict? Um, And are we kind of, condemning them to that fate by turning them away, you know? And on that note, in the first installment of YouTube Atheists that I did in that episode, I talked about the amazing atheist and how even though he can be, you know, vitriolic, he can be over the top and all this stuff, and he's a very divisive figure, there's a lot of people that hate him on YouTube, including a lot of other atheists, that I still found him to be a sensitive, intelligent guy at heart with, with a lot to say, and he usually has a very grounded kind of common sense 
take on things. But he said some weird stuff, or at least he he couched his views in kind of an, an unappealing way concerning this refugee debate. And I think he issued one tweet where he said something like 30-something thousand people die in car accidents. Or maybe it was, I forget what the statistic was, but he was he was pointing out the thousands of people that die in automobile accidents either every day or every year compared to the less than 200 people that died as a result of these recent uh, Parisian terror attacks. And, uh, and I don't actually know what he was trying to get at with that. I mean, yeah, I guess just, uh, as a thought exercise, it's kind of interesting to compare, you know, the two numbers or whatever. Uh, and I think, well, it's two different problems. I can remember even thinking as a kid, maybe we've all thought about this, that you hear about these horrible car accidents, you know, and uh, how they take place every day, people dying on the highways. You know? um, like Woody, like I sometimes use that Woody Allen quote about, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's like me. I've made my peace with non-existence. The idea of being dead doesn't bother me, but I am afraid of the dying process. I'm, a, I'm afraid of the pain and fear that it might entail. And I'm definitely afraid of dying in a car accident because just the way a human body can be mangled, burnt, ruined, you know, and going at an incredibly fast speed to boot, you know, um, I don't, I don't know if it's the same everywhere. I don't know if my UK friends have to go through this too, but when I was getting my license, they used to make you watch these gory films that showed real car accident victims to try to kind of scare you into taking driving seriously. And so I think automobile deaths are a very real concern. Um, and I'm not trying to be inflammatory by saying this, but for lack of other words, um, it, it's kind of like a mini Holocaust every year where we sacrifice people to the convenience of driving from point A to point B. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that is kind of the weird unspoken contract we've made as a civilization that where in a way it's as if we're willing to sacrifice a certain number of lives every year for the convenience of trying to get from A to B faster and more comfortably, you know? So I think that is something to be taken seriously, but that doesn't discredit the seriousness of people who die at the hands of terrorists. And we're not talking about accidents. We're talking about people intentionally slaughtering other human beings. So I don't know what he was getting at with that. And then he also said something, and, and th these were kind of strange mathematics, kind of morally off-putting mathematics, wh where he was talking about how it's kind of a gamble letting refugees in. And, and let's say we let in thousands of refugees, but someday we lose 30 or 50 people in a terrorist attack. We still have, would have helped more human beings than we lost. And I found that rather unpalatable. And once again, it's almost like you were making a sacrifice to try to placate the better angels of your being. Like, it's all right if 30 or 50 Parisians or Americans or Germans die uh, because we would have helped thousands of refugees. And 
maybe there's a grain of moral truth in that, that maybe it is a good act to take a gamble and help people out, even though it might cost you down the road. But I thought he put it in a very off-putting and ugly kind of way. So you can probably tell I'm like split on this whole issue with the, the refugees and uh, if we should stem off the flow of immigration completely. Uh, to be honest, and maybe I'll, I'll sound bigoted by saying it, but I think it would be completely understandable if a nation wanted to close its doors for a while to until they you know get a handle on the problem they have with homegrown terrorism being committed by members of a certain ethnic group or a certain religious group and i think what's obviously very important too is that there there has to be some real efforts made i'm not saying that there haven't been already to get these segments of the population to assimilate. And I know England's had a lot of problems with this, with radical imams spewing all this hateful rhetoric, this pro-extremist rhetoric, and it seems like nothing's done about it. So I think the first thing you got to do is crack down on violent extremist hate speech by these mullahs and clerics who are doing the radicalization. And uh, you got to do a better effort of, uh, effort of trying to get people to uh, assimilate so people aren't as readily seduced by online radicalization at the hands of ISIS and things like that, too. Because, of course, ISIS is fairly tech-savvy, and they do a lot of their recruiting online. I'm sure I'll probably catch flack from people on both sides of the argument. <laughs> That's what happens when you're in the middle of the road, man. But I, I think being in the middle of the road is the... Uh, the middle path is the honest and 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 well reasoned path, I think. But anyway, and then uh, is lamentable says Sam Harris is a perfect example of an atheist who is spiritual. Spiritual in quotes. Always wondered about that, and I replied, I've spoken about that on a couple of episodes. I think there are certain experiences like creative inspiration, being moved by art, music, nature, a feeling of oneness that people deem quote-unquote spiritual, but may very well have a biochemical or neuroscientific explanation. Still meaningful experiences, but not necessarily quote-unquote spiritual or supernatural in origin. Endorphins, neurotransmitters, drugs, these things can alter consciousness. So technically, you can enjoy things like meditation and other techniques for altering consciousness and still be an atheist smiley face emoticon okay i don't know if they want me to reveal their true identity but i have uh someone that's uh, i think has become a real friend a listener of the show that i've been communicating with for uh, probably at least i don't know what a couple of years now but on youtube they go by dirk stabbins and this is in reply to my episode on martin luther and paid indulgences and uh really uh highly intelligent guy and, and like myself, very irreverent. We both kind of have an inappropriate sense of humor, uh, which is probably why we get along so well. Uh, but he says, Luther believed in shapeshifters and that children could be demons in disguise. He believed that the devil was real and living on earth. He wrote some really wild shit. I question whether hurling of I question whether hurling of the ink pot was metaphorical. I know that at least a few scholars think it's plausible that it really happened. And of course, he's referring to an anecdote I discussed where Martin Luther supposedly uh, hurled an inkwell at the devil 
to try to uh, banish the devil. And uh, there's a certain debate over whether this was meant to be taken figuratively or not. Did Martin Luther, in a fit of superstition and depression, you know, throw in uh throw an inkwell at what he actually thought was the devil? Or was this a metaphor? Was this figuratively talking about using scripture to banish the devil or something like that? But anyway, uh, he continues, I'll leave you some Martin Luther quotes. You decide if he was mad. At Susson, the devil carried off last Good Friday three grooms who had devoted themselves to him. At Pottsburg, there is a lake similarly cursed. If you throw a stone in it, a dreadful storm immediately arises and the whole neighboring district quakes to its center. Tis the devil's kept prisoner there. As for the demented, I hold it certain that all beings deprived of reason are thus afflicted only by the devil. Idiots, the lame, the blind, the dumb are men in whom the devils have established themselves. And all the physicians who heal these infirmities, as though they proceeded from natural causes, are ignorant blockheads. As to the common people, one has to be hard with them, as they see that they do their work and that, under the threat of the sword and the law, they comply with the observance of piety, just as you chain up wild beasts. Demons live in many lands, but particularly in Prussia. <laughs> our bodies are always exposed to Satan. The maladies I suffer are not natural, but devil's spells. Last but not least, crowning gemstones. How often have not the demons called Nicks drawn women and girls into the water, and there had commerce with them, with fearful consequences? I myself saw and touched a desse, a child of this sort, which had no human parents but had proceeded from the devil. He was twelve years old and in outward form exactly resembled ordinary children. Holy shit. Um, and further down, uh, Dirk says... Whether it's literally true is something lost to time and we'll, and we'll never know. Luther had believed for most of his life that the devil, or at least demons, had been tormenting him. This was not a singular experience, and so it seems plausible that it might have literally happened. Then, uh, I'm kind of running out of steam here. My nose is completely blocked up. Now I'm in, like, David Putty overdrive. But Django says, Martin Luther has always fascinated me. Every time you said theses, I thought you were saying feces, which made me think of a fairly widespread rumor about Martin Luther. He reputedly ate a spoonful of his own feces every day. I seriously doubt that is true, but it's one of those things you can't unlearn. By the way, where were you last week? And then Dirk replied to uh, Django, oh my God, I so hope that's true. And I say, it's funny you say that because I kept thinking of the word feces when I was saying it. I think I just fell behind with my video production. I start off by recording the podcast and then put the YouTube version together afterwards. Smiley face emoticon. With that, I'll probably call it wraps because uh, I have two twin orifices here, my, my nostrils, that I cannot breathe through. <clears throat> and I'm, as I said, I'm running out of steam. So I had fun doing this episode. Um... And uh, you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel, leave a review on iTunes. Please do, hint, hint. Uh, and let me know if you do via Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and uh, I'll read your review on the air. This is pre-recorded, and I don't work at a radio station. Is it uh, still appropriate to say on the air? Probably not. 
Also, if you want to support the show financially, monetarily, you can go to patreon.com uh, slash the week in doubt and donate as little as uh, 99 cents, a dollar a month and quit anytime you want. And you can also use the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration to uh, make a donation as little as 99 cents. And like I say, it costs me about nineteen ninety nine a month to uh, host the feed and all that. So I consider that uh, Patreon and PayPal dough as uh, going towards that cost. But okay, I think I said it all. So until next week, thanks for listening.